0: Doing crooked, crooked, crooked,
1: crooked. Welcome back to uh, Hampson with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who Commentary Podcast. Woo! <laughs> For episode two. I thought you deserved some applause. Thank you very much. I very rarely get it and it's much deserved. Uh, episode two of The Censorise, which is titled, Gary?
0: The Unwilling Warriors, isn't now,
1: it? I'm going to ask you a question straight off the bat. Yes. Uh, do you think um, it was a smart idea back in the day to have individual episode titles? Did we Oh, yeah.
0: When they went? Yeah. If if I was in charge of Doctor Who now, <laughs> nobody would watch it. But if I was in charge of Doctor Who now, um, every episode, because I would go back to continuing serials, uh, they'd all have individual story titles. I mean, none of this episode one, part one shit. Uh, it's one of the things I like about when they've done two and three parts in, in Modern Doctor Who. Russell went very quickly and said, no, nothing is episode one, episode two. Every episode of the two-parter has a different title. Now, I think that's absolutely the way to go. I and think... Dr. are a little, um, unusual, aren't they? Or don't they... Like Coronas
1: of the Sun, I'm not sure what that has to do about that. Oh, other- yeah,
0: I mean, you 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 get to the point where they're making up titles for... I mean, Strangers in Space actually is a terrible opening title because it really isn't about anything. No, there's lots of but, you know... So are half the movies and books and poets, poems of the world. The titles bear no resemblance to, to what's going on inside. So it doesn't matter. So long as the, the title is sufficiently lurid to make a, a an eight or nine-year-old go, I'm intrigued. Oh, no, I, no. I want to know what a stranger in space is. I want to know who the unwilling warriors are. Well, it's not um, as
1: if when they went to you know single story titles that their imagination has got any better, is it? The no. Is no.
0: But now. then you do have... I will say, you know, you do have... Thank, the bottom line is of course we have six great story titles here let's say i can't remember what they are but let's pretend that they're all great because the sensorite is actually the world's most boring title yeah. <laughs> you no know, at least by the time you get to the point where they're doing episode one or part three or whatever we have things like terror of the zygons and the talons of Wayne Chiang and the robots of death you know mm-hmm. so the overall story title so there's very few bad doctor who story titles from sort of the trout near onwards, they're they're all pretty good story titles that will at least pique your imagination. I I would suggest that perhaps Sharda and Castrovalva and Frontios and Logopolis probably aren't great story titles. I was going to say, what about City of Death? Great story title. If only it had been about a city of death instead of a city of chickens and... and (laughs) paintings and the louvre looking like it was somebody's living room
1: you are living up to that reputation today do you know that i've to.
0: i've got to maintain this hatred i don't know because otherwise i have nothing in my life (laughs) i have to be known for one thing it's hating city of death there's nothing (laughs) special about me apart
1: from my hatred of city of death yes i refuse to believe that (laughs)
0: okay (laughs) shall we skip into episode two let's skip into episode two Hey, our
1: counters in, in, five, four, three, two, one. Off we go. I'm going to hit you with another question. Yep. Okay, this is a bit of a long-winded one. And if you knew the gentleman that sent it, you'd understand why. Uh, <laughs> the sensor came back into everyone's consciousness when the toys were released last year. Which other classic alien monster character would you get a similar release and loving reappraisal?
0: I have lo- long, long, long been campaigning that what we need is a set, a, a character option set, a nice B&M, or better still, a character options website exclusive, yes. that is a Zabi, a Minotra, and a Venom Grub. Yes. I would be the happiest human being on this planet the day I got my hands on those. I have to say, I was an extre- extraordinarily happy human being the day I got my sensorites and my vords. I was just like, <laughs> oh, I'm 58 years old and I'm excited to hold in my hand a board <laughs> and a sensorite dolly, you know, because we didn't have those when I was growing up. You have a waste um, of your life, yeah. I'm telling you. <laughs> oh, I oh, yes, please. <laughs> Isn't there a zombie out there, though? Can't you? No, no, huh? no, nobody's done a zombie. I also happen to say, I think you could do the zombie in the Minotra on television today as well, um, and they oh. wouldn't take much updating, but they would look bloody amazing. What, well, as um, practical effects or? yeah, to come in a new series. I, I think they'd look fantastic. The makeup you could now do on the Minotra, and I have to say, I think the, make, the Minotra were fantastic for 1965, mm. but you could really do something very clever with prosthetics and, and insectoid faces now, or butterfly faces for them, and you'd make the Zabi look terrifying.
1: Could you imagine that massive cancerous web in the CGI? That would be
0: amazing. Yeah, would be brilliant. Oh, you see, let's remake the web planet. Let's forget making new docs. Sorry, Russell, we're gonna forget making new. <laughs> we're gonna do a remake in, in 2023 of the web planet. He has forgotten so about it, the winner. He mentioned the iSop Galaxy and Bad Wolf, didn't he? Absolutely. Absolutely. And of course, he mentions the the sense sphere in, oh, in um dude. planet of the ood Mm. hmm there's a question about that
1: later i think as well okay so john's having a terrible time right now he's
0: having a terrible time i feel very very sorry for him but oh god that is that's a real acting performance he's so good everyone's looking at the camera well he isn't he's looking just slightly off camera left uh but yes it's an interesting way of giving a performance but it works for 60s television because if you had been looking at Ian and Barbara, sorry, Ian and Barbara, if you had been looking at Susan and Barbara, you wouldn't be able to see his face. And the cameras in those days couldn't go and do over the shoulder shots and reaction shots. So really and truly, it is very proscenium. Everything is either played to the front of the house or the back of the house. Here we've got a sequence of three people with their backs to the camera. <laughs> fairly really dodgy acting. Turn around, William Russell, turn around, don't let the Doctor talk to you like that. Um, it, is
1: a, it is a fact. In I think it invades 70s as well, where you have those shots, those Kate of Androzani shots, you know, with Chellac and the Fifth Doctor behind. And they're, yeah. both, they're talking to each other, but one's talking to the other's back because everyone's talking to the camera.
0: But there's also interesting focus and, and the music and the lighting and, and the brilliant dialogue in that scene covers up for that it's graham harper knowing how to direct television on a limited budget um this is just someone saying shit we can't turn around and face the camera because all- <laughs> so everyone's. Look, we've got another shot everyone's back and back of the head is to the camera um, and look, you can't see who's speaking because you're close up with the doctor and ian's going barbara susan this is something that doctor who does
1: extremely well you know across the years burning through doors they do it yes.
0: well on the daleks planet of the daleks the sea devils Give us a bit of polystyrene and an acetylene torch and we're off.
1: (laughs) And you can do it slowly as well. It's this whole suspense thing again, isn't
0: it? Yes. Where does Susan get her costumes from? Why does the TARDIS wardrobe only have clothes for 1960s people?
1: (laughs) Um, That is a very good question.
0: I mean, Victoria ends up on board the TARDIS, right? First thing she does, she decides to change her Victorian costume into a 60s costume didn't look and go christ the fashions were much better in the 1990s no she goes i'll wear something from the 1960s susan is a time traveler goes oh i'm no longer pretending to be at Cole hill school but i'm still going to wear a 60s uh, oh look at those feet <gasps> don't try oh, he's trodden on his foot bless
1: oh, that is a trip hazard isn't it those feet look <laughs> at
0: yeah, and also, those quiet. costumes around the crotch aren't leaving much to the imagination for those poor actors.
1: For whatever reason, when they left the planet Quinnis, I'm going to do some retroactive rewriting here. Um, they had to jettison the wardrobe for some reason. Right. A dramatic adventure. So all the clothes vanished. Obviously, then they landed in the 60s and they just filled up the wardrobe of what was available.
0: Right, they went around. do you think they went to some op shops and uh, <laughs> used all the old clothing they could possibly get to? Mm. That would actually explain quite a lot for the next sort of 15 years of Doctor Who wardrobes, really, wouldn't it? Come on then. Because of a slightly out of fashion until Joe Grant turns up. Oh, she's fabulous. Oh, I he did. has brilliant costumes. The TARDIS does her very, very well. You know, here you are, Joe, have every fab and groovy costume you could possibly imagine but everyone else in the 60s is reduced to wearing costumes that clearly you're right susan went out and bought in 1963
1: the thing is about joe grant is i see katie manning at practically every convention i go to now and she's still she can still pull off that gear now
0: yeah she's she's like a brilliant clothes horse she's
1: fantastic so the sensorite design yes
0: brilliant as it is look at that I, 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 love like, I like the heads i like i like all the hair and the oh know. don't be mean to them and hurt their heads so <laughs> things oh too much for susan she's she's had enough gone to sleep okay so this was what i was saying one of the things i love about the concept of the sensorites is we have an alien race and this is what i wanted to do when i proposed my novel because it's all about identity i've always been fascinated by identity and lack of memory and anything involving how you work out who you are but the sensorites as a race are all identical and the only way they can tell each other apart is by the clothes they're wearing
1: Mm
0: -hmm. it's a pretty bad genetic thing for an entire race of beings who can actually outfox each other by swapping a black stripe on a suit and nobody goes hang on a minute you're not the one in charge you're that bloke over there and you think how do they manage to survive for presumably many thousands of years as a civilization if the easiest way to be evil is to put a different costume on
1: because everyone busy. doesn't recognize
0: your face you recognize the costume
1: you was going to write a book that made this
0: plausible I salute you, sir. No, I wasn't going to necessarily make it plausible. I was going to make it a very major plot point of their genetic history and, and how easy it was and why that they had evolved in that way to sort of try and say it's something to do with lack of identity and loss of identity and they never recovered from it and that they are, therefore, because why that in this story, the one thing we know about the centralized is incredibly paranoid. Mm. Why are they incredibly primed? Why are they so isolationist? Why are they completely xenophobic to the humans and everything like that? And the reason clearly has to be, they're simply terrified of the fact that if anyone works out that they don't recognize each other, their society is ripe for taking over. Because all you've got to do is an alien is land on the planet and make them swap clothes. <laughs> their whole society falls apart. You put three sensorites in a row and say, you wear his clothes, you wear, and off you go. They no longer know who anyone is. The public don't know who anyone is. You've overtaken. You've taken over that society instantly. It, it's 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 like a ready-made, please come and conquer us. The irony being that all the faces of the censorites in this story are not identical. <laughs> so it's designed so that the audience go, well, oh, that's him and that's him and that's him. But <laughs> the actual censorites don't recognise each other at all, despite the fact one's got a wispy beard, one's got a long beard, one's got fluffy ears. They don't see it. And that's fascinated me all this, for, for donkey's years, that they, we all look at each other's faces and that's how we recognize each other because all our faces are different. Their faces are all different, but that's not how they recognize each other. It's only by what they put on first thing in the morning. Ooh. Which also means a bit like Albert Einstein. You've got to have a, a wardrobe with about 350 identical costumes to get you through a year. Um, but yeah, okay, uh, I love. Them. I think they're, they're great. Still publishing they're BBC awesome. books, you know. They get missed crazy. a trick with that one, didn't they? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. They should have snapped my hand off for that, but instead they went, yeah, no, <laughs> not the sense rights. No one cares about sense rights.
1: Well, I know it's a shame, isn't it? It is, it is a shame. Okay, Carol and is it Carol and no, it's not Carol. And John, is it? Carol. Yes, it's Carol. Um, they're they're a couple, aren't they? and Carol and John at the end they head off into the metaphorical sunset do we think they're going to have a happy life together
0: of course they are because they've been rescued by Doctor Who and his friends of course course. they're going to have a happy happy life he's been cured of his madness she'll hopefully be cured of her bizarre (laughs) b-52 hairstyle. um she looks a bit like Cindy from the b-52s doesn't she she was break into a, a, a thing of rock lobster or something, both with the clothes and the hair. Um, yeah, I think they get, went off happy. I think everyone in 60s Doctor Who, I think Altos and Sabitha, despite the fact that she's a harridan and he's a screaming queen, absolutely got off and, and got married and, and took over ruling Marinus for at least a week because obviously they would have been terrible, terrible people. But in the 60s, that's what you wanted. You wanted to think, uh, it's like Ian and Barbara. Do we ever think that Ian and Barbara didn't run off, get married, and have kids at the end of this? Of course they did. Same as Ben and Polly did.
1: The only person who's determined that that didn't happen is William Russell.
0: Yeah, well, pff, he's. <laughs> <all>. <laughs> I'll tell you what, Altos had fabulous
1: knees, though, didn't he? That makes the Keys of Marinus a leaf worth watching. No,
0: no, there is nothing about Altos that is fabulous. <laughs> Absolutely not. No. <laughs> oh, I'd yeah. rather have Yartek, leader of the alien board. Thank you very much.
1: Well, that's saying a lot about your personal life there. Honestly. Yeah, it
0: doesn't, it doesn't come <laughs> out right because that's certainly not my personality. Plenty sure, here, know, there's plenty of problem there, I'm telling you. else in that story who's vaguely attractive, and there actually isn't, um, which is unusual for 60s Doctor Who. 60s Doctor Who's very good for giving you some good eye candy of both men and women. Um, Late 80s. You know, the doesn't uh, do it. This does because it's got Stephen Dartnell in it and I think he's just hot as anything in this. Do you think 60s Doctor Who is generally quite optimistic then? I think 60s television is generally optimistic. I mean, obviously, you Cathy Come Home is in your war games. But generally, I think because it was such a new medium, that serialised weekly television shows rather than one-off plays are generally fairly optimistic. Because I think that's just the way people were. They didn't want to tune in. You know, you look at soaps from the 60s, you look at newcomers and compact and, and crossroads and things like that. They're not doom and gloom. We, we, soaps didn't really become doom and gloom until EastEnders turned up. Really, e- even up to that point, Corrie and things like that, they all had their moments. But television was a fairly positive thing. And, it's, and it, I mean, it, was, it got negative in the 70s, long before EastEnders. But soap-wise, I think EastEnders is the first one that went we're going to be gritty and we're going to be harsh and Brookside very quickly because its first few years had been equally as even for all of that Channel 4 wanted it to be the first few years of Brookside is actually quite chirpy and soapy yeah. um, and it's after EastEnders comes along and it's like Christ we need to start burying people under the patio don't we and and, and equal, got a fight with uh, with EastEnders but in the 60s Newcomers and crossroads and and all of those sorts of things, compact, were terribly bland, if you like, but they got you watching every week because you just cared about the characters. You know, the uh, and of- I, the I think program. that's true of a lot of dramas. Your you Z cars and your Dixons and all of these things, they weren't hard hitting, they weren't gritty, and Doctor Who falls into that because that's not what it's about. It's about an adventure, and at the end of four or six weeks, everyone goes back and the tard is happy and hopefully. Obviously, there's a probably larger death count in Doctor Who than there is in, in Compact or, or the newcomers. But um, generally, those that have survived the story go home relatively happy.
1: I think I can I can tell you the moment where uh, TV started looking over its shoulder at things like EastEnders and saying, well, we need to be a bit more like that. It's that plane crash in Emmerdale Farm. Yeah. Where, you know, it was all a lovely, nice, gentle show. And then all of a sudden there's a sheep massacre and people having um, fluid in their eyes and oh it's it hilarious. Don't get me wrong. Um, I think latter day Brookside was brilliantly absurd. You know, it was some of the best comedy I've ever seen.
0: Brookie was clever because it was brilliantly written and brilliantly acted. And it was basically in a way that Coronation Street had always gone, aye, hey, we're Northern and we're filmed in Manchester and we're full of Northern actors. It was still terribly sort of nice. It's the nice version of the north so we didn't upset the people in the south and they could look at the manchester and go, oh bless i bet they've still got toilets outside as well oh poor <laughs> northerners rookie came along and went no we're hard as nails mm-hmm. scousers and we're going to be in your face and we're going to make you realize that there is more to life than than your cozy little southeast london and surrey homes i think it was brilliant i i think you know you've got what's the
1: name under the patio, didn't you? And helicopters crashing into the- yeah. dro-
0: but, but from a from a social uh, um, and class point of view, I think Brookside is probably the single most important television programme in the history of British TV. It was more it's interesting. It's the one that changed everything and went, hang on a minute, this is what life is really like in the North rather than Coronation Street. Um, in the same way that Grange Hill, early Grange Hill challenged children's television and said, actually, we're not all angels and we're not all lovely. And when uh, kids aren't all fantastic and school teachers aren't all terribly nice and polite and cute. But I think Brookie is the, the show that came along and really shook up British television and made ITV and BBC go, oh, we can't get away with being nice and middle class anymore. We have to actually acknowledge the rest of the world exists. And I think Brookie is... is well, now sensual. they're doing it, aren't they? Uh, of course. But, and so they should. I mean, that's how... We, you know, the United Kingdom is sixty-five million people in a reasonably small area, but all those people need representation, and we didn't have it before Brookside. We only had middle-class London or a caricatured version of the North, and things like Coronation Street and, the and Brook- Doctor Who. I think, you know, unfortunately, peddled the middle-classness for a very, very long time. Yeah, um, you know, yeah, look as, as the far movies, movies. even right through the eighties, I think until, well,
1: until the tail end, where you were getting stories like Battlefield, where there was, you know, some fair representation in there.
0: Yeah, but even even then, you know, you've got things like Ace is meant to be this sort of yeah. teenage <laughs> runaway sort of thing. She's still terribly middle class and talks with quite posh accent. Mm. Um, there was no real attempt at mm. getting anything earthy. I think into Doctor Who. The only times they did it was Ben who they kind of went, oh, well, we, we, we're in that era of, of the Michael Caine Alfie kind of thing. So we'll have a bit of 60s Cockney in there, bit of television Cockney, but you know, at least it was genuinely uh, Michael Caine's voice. And then Dodo, who they went, hey, we'll make her Northern. And one story after being Northern in the arc, they went, oh, actually, no. Yes. So could you try and be a bit more middle-class now? So she goes very middle-class for a couple of stories. Then she gets Northern again at the beginning of the Gunfighters. And then when she comes to leaving the war games, she's talking like the queen. She's there, Terry, Terry, oh, I've got a, oh yes, I've got a telephone call from the professor. And it's just like, yeah, they just couldn't work out how to make her 60s and real. So they didn't bother, they just gave up on it. Um, And yeah, Michael Craze comes along and at least gives us a bit of cockney. But generally Doctor Who is frighteningly middle-class all the way through the original run. There is never a point where it really reflects the length and breadth of, of either accents or behaviour across Britain. Um, and then Russell comes along and throws that right out the window and, and sort of chaps it up quite nicely I think.
1: Um, swinging back around to the optimism, I think there's this kind of bizarre aberration in the middle of Hartnell's time where you have um, the myth makers, the Daleks master plan, the massacre, even the uh, even the gunfires to some extent which kind of end on you know lots of people dying and quite downbeat notes
0: well i think yes unlike the myth makers and the massacre they have to because that's kind of history works that way really um <laughs> yeah mark plan is is quite astonishing it's quite a good body count there aren't very many people well, actually, aren't very many people in Dullam, I suppose. It's quite odd for a 12-part story. Um, there's people who are in one episode of it, but in terms of your ongoing characters, it is literally the Doctor and Stephen, Katerina, Brett, Sarah, um, and Marvik Chen, and to some extent, um, Carlton. Um, and that's it. And yeah, Sarah dies, Brett Vaughn dies, Katerina dies... Uh, Marvit Chen dies. A few Daleks get killed as well. Other than that, everyone else is cannon fodder for an individual episode, and, and not much more. Um, yeah, but that's that's the fantasy world of Doctor Who. You know, you wouldn't have done Dalek Master Plan, I think, in nineteen sixty five, set in nineteen sixty five England. You know. It takes the war machines not long after that, but particularly where the fear comes along and goes, here is a story set in contemporary world where everyone's going to die. And uh, you know, you sit there watching, it. I remember sitting there watching it and going, oh my God, you know, these soldiers are all getting killed off. And somehow I accept the fantasy world where a bunch of archeologists in the future get killed on Telos, or the Daleks are gunning everybody down on, on, on Scaro or on Vulcan or whatever, but I was I was inhibited by the idea of soldiers on Earth, modern-day soldiers getting killed by Yeti. I, I found that deeply upsetting. And that's actually something that went through me for the rest of the unit era, oh, so the right up until the vacant <laughs> is I would always wince every time a human soldier got killed. My brain goes, oh, God, the brigadier's going to have to tell the family and his mum and his dad, and maybe he's got a wife. And all of that stuff would go through my head with a unit soldier that never crossed my mind if it was a futuristic or a historical thing. But there's something about contemporary people dying, and I still do it today, that I, I I get upset when I see policemen or soldiers or, curiously, pedestrians in the street, don't worry me, but if it's someone who is somehow become cannon fodder in a battle sequence, uh, firing guns, I, I, there's a little part of me that goes, oh, don't don't kill the soldiers, don't kill all those people, because that's somebody's son or daughter.
1: Um, been very I
0: don't think in, that it's um, the future.
1: Resurrection of the Daleks, then. The, the yeah. bottom count in that is phenomenal.
0: It's one of the reasons that I'm not a big fan of Eric's writing, um, because I I, I think... Something like resurrection and revelation is the same, and obviously, I have very little time for Earthshot. Eric doesn't treat death as something terrible, which is ironic that, that Tegan leaves because of all the death, but it's so utterly out of nowhere because she's seen far more death and far worse death in her previous stories. She didn't get to know any of those people particularly, we didn't get a chance to know them, and, and it's Eric's say was writing. I think suffers from this thing that I'm bored of this character, so I'll kill them, rather than this character either needs a part in this story or I'll get rid of them and I will write them out and put you know, do something different. And he just goes, he treats everyone in Earthshock and Resurrection and Revelation as pure cannon fodder. men as
1: well, like that's how he resolves yeah. a lot, isn't yeah. it? by murdering them.
0: But Attack of the Cybermen is, just doesn't even have a story, so, you know. <laughs> um, whereas the Visitation, which I think is Eric's crowning glory, um, other than the, the deaths at the beginning, actually nobody dies in that story until the three aliens get killed at the end. And... <laughs> Bless the, the cute little alien that gets shot and grabs his crotch and falls over and He dies.
1: batters one with a gun, doesn't she?
0: Yeah. Bash, <laughs> <laughs> bash. Um, but you know, I, death, death for me has to be earned. It has to, it has to have a resonance. So something like the Web of Fear, each of those soldiers' deaths has a resonance because you've got to know them over the episode. And when you get to an Eric Sayward story, I always find it doesn't really matter. I'm not upset that, that everybody dies, and that's why Tegan runs away upset. Because we didn't care. Their, their, their death was so utterly unnecessary and unimportant. It didn't move the story on. It just, oh, I've run out of lines for this character. I'll kill him off then. There's one death in uh, yeah. you
1: know, a science fiction story um, in Russell Davis's time. I, I think it is one of like the standout deaths in Doctor Who. And that is Linda with a Y. Yep. In part oh, of the,
0: the worst death of all. It is. It never have happened. Chilling, isn't it? And I wept at that. I just thought, well, no, you can't kill her off. And, and, and Russell will tell you that. You see, that to me is a mark of of a brilliant writer who knows how in, in well, two episodes to make you fall in love with someone enough that the last thing in the world you want them to do is die. And die in such a brilliantly clever oh, way. That, that a darling has yeah, <laughs> I love all that. He
1: does that terrible thing, doesn't he? Of, of giving her a great backstory, making her very funny and likable, suggesting that she's going to join the TARDIS. Yep. And then murdering her. He's a bad yeah. man sometimes. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Gary, it's we've managed to achieve something unique. Say again. We've managed to achieve something unique. Which is? We've managed to do an entire episode of this commentary podcast. And
0: <laughs> I don't know if we we've re- talked about it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's Mervyn Pinfield directing. Oh, well. But who cares? Because that was such a lovely conversation. But
1: (laughs) we'll try our best at episode three to give this story some consideration. We will. We will. Honest.